Welcome to Bring It In, the True Hoop podcast. I'm Louisa Thomas, your guest host today. I'm here with Drought Hector and David Thorpe, and thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. This is my favorite part, Coach. You know I love when the guests intro the show, because then people are like, what? <laughs> Who is that? But Louisa is a return guest. You've been here before talking about your book. Um, you I'm are sure exactly- everyone will recognize my dulcet tone. <laughs> 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 you you've been in here before you write extensively in the new yorker about sports from a wider a wider lens so before we dive into that how are you how is life that's good i'm 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 dealing with um two small children and the start of school and um a kind of busy time in the sports world <laughs> so it's been busy i'm tired <laughs> but the fall is coming the weather is turning i'm feeling optimistic so yeah, let's do this. And how about you, Coach? I know you. It's been the, the, the beginning of school has not been a thing for you in quite some time. But <laughs> well, the whole the whole idea of you know fall is coming, the weather changing. What? <laughs> like, I just I just walked in I you know two miles this morning. It was covered in sweat. Like we don't have that for We're quite a while. on different planets. No. Like I can't even talk to you right. Hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, yeah. Listen, I Florida, rub Florida in many uh, ways is a different. Right. Planet. I rub. Hey, watch it, Gerard. <laughs> <laughs> I rub it into Henry and Gerard all winter long, but I had to take my it's lumps true. right now. It's, it's, it's not. Yeah. A, l- luckily, we have a pool, so I will be in there this afternoon for sure. I mean, but we, we get to tease them about Florida, man, and like all the wacky things that happen down there, right? So it's, you know, yeah. it's, all, it's all good. Um, it, it, obviously, in a more serious tone, um, the NBA recently announced um, in the past day or so that Robert Sarver, the governor of the NBA's Phoenix Suns and the WNBA's Phoenix Mercury has been fined $10 million and suspended from his governor duties for a year. And this is due to an ESPN report that came out last year uh, from Baxter Holmes, uh, which detailed several allegations of racist, misogynist, sexist, just horrendous behavior that would not be, that shouldn't be allowed in civilized society. Um, that went on for many, many years uh, in Phoenix. This report coming out was not news to many people in and around the NBA. Um, these stories had been floating around for a while. It just so happened that, all right, Baxter went down there. People started talking. They put it on the record. So the NBA does what it does when a story like that comes out. Okay, let's get the lawyers involved. Let's investigate. Let's put out a 10 billion page report. Cool. The report basically confirmed just about everything in the ESPN article. Awesome. Um, and in response, this is, this is the, this is his, his punishment, his penance. And the conversation has been a lot about, is it enough? Yada, yada. And, you know, we we'll get into that. But Louisa, when you first heard the news and heard that that was the, the punishment, what were you thinking? Um, I find like the whole, I mean, I find the whole thing depressing. Um, and that only became more depressing as I read the report, um, and heard about the punishment because, as you say, Gerard, none of this um, was surprising to me. You know, it just said what we already knew. Um, so in that sense, um, there was nothing, news did not really break. The only news was, um, you know, what was going to be um, the consequence. And there had been some talk early on, certainly from people outside of the league office, um, that, you know, maybe this would be a Donald Sterling moment. Maybe he would have his team, he would be forced to sell um, obviously that is not happening. Um, and Adam Silver, um, you know, has defended the decision and basically said, you know, it's not my position to do that. There is a process it's long involved and we don't believe that the, you know, that punishment would fit this crime. Um, but, um, you know, as I read the report, um, I kind of became even more depressed because I don't think he's necessarily wrong about a lot of things. I mean, I, I don't think that the report, even though it's, it seems eye-opening in certain respects and its conclusion that maybe Robert Sarver's not a huge racist or sexist or whatever, that he's just kind of a a person who doesn't know how to treat human beings as human beings, um, which honestly is kind of the (laughs) definition of a racist. (laughs) But, Um, but, um, you know, I think maybe he's not wrong about that. I mean, lots of people use... um, racism and sexism. It's a pretty easy way to just humiliate people. And that seems to be what he was trying to do. And so I I did think, um, and I I have written a little bit about this, that the sort of conversation about whether or not he's as bad as David Sterling um, is a little bit um, 
beside the point because, you know, I think there's a larger conversation about, about, you know, why he was able to use these kind of degrading comments um, and what the NBA's response by saying, well, he's not actually that big a racist. So therefore, you know, a year seems appropriate um, says about, says about power and, and this kind of, um, you know, you can call it structural racism yeah, or yeah. whatever, but yeah. Um, that was I'm with you. I, I did feel powerless. I mean, honestly, yeah. like, you know, I've, I've been, I've been 18 years old in the sports world, you know, and had that, had the unwelcome massage and whatever. And what that does is, you know, when you're in that position, you don't, go to HR or you do. And in this case, several people have gone to HR and said, you know, this happened. You kind of laugh it off and you just feel like shit. You just feel powerless. Mm -hmm. And, um, but not so much you'd say, well, it's not really a big deal. You know, like, I mean, it's sort of like, there's all sorts of rationalizations. And the point, the point is that it is a power play. It is a kind of humor thing. It is a kind of thing that powerful people can get off on. And, um, and that seems to be what's going on and, and, and reading the report was, um, yeah, it was a little bit triggering actually, you know, understood. Yeah. David, what'd you, what'd you think when you, when you saw, heard the news? Well, there's a, there's a array of things that happened. First of all, uh, and just, uh, add into Louisa, what Louisa just said, uh, Donald Sterling shouldn't be like the benchmark. You know, he, we, it shouldn't be, well, he didn't reach that level. Therefore, like, no, we can treat these things independently. Uh, I saw Howard Beck's question. I think we've all probably mm-hmm. seen it. Mm-hmm. And I put this in our little truth uh, uh, message chain yesterday. When, when, when Adam Silver was given the question, why is he treated, why does he get to be treated differently? I thought Adam Silver had a chance to, to really have an amazing answer, which would be, Actually, when you are the governor, the principal owner of a, of a team, uh, you can get away with some things. You, as I wrote yesterday, Gerard, you saw it. Uh, you can show up late to the office. You can chew with your mouth open. You can talk on your cell phone during a meeting if you want to. There's lots of things you can get away with. And, and quite frankly, it's really not a big deal. But what Adam Silver needed to add is, but in this level, like, no, there has to be a stop. Like, we, we, it's a long process, as, as he said, as Louisa just said. But we're going, to under, we're going to undergo that process, regardless of whether or not you want to label his behavior as racist or misogynistic. It's behavior that just simply can't be allowed in our league. We can't control other people's leagues. We can't control other people's businesses. But there's a business that we can control. Uh-oh. David froze. <laughs> That's a Florida thing, but I, I, I kind of know where he was going with that one. Louisa, I, you know, I'm with you, and I... I Oh, there you are. You're back. <laughs> you, you froze. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, I was just going to, I wanted to read a line from a paragraph actually from Louisa's piece that kind of hit on this. Cause I think you're right, Louisa. It is, it is a power play, right? So in a strict sense, the report is probably right. Sarver was playing petty power games. The NBA seems to have decided that this makes his behavior though unacceptable, forgivable. Even if the $10 million fine is the largest allowed a year away from his team is hardly a reckoning. Both the Suns and the Mercury have lately been among the teams, the best teams in their leagues, as majority owners offer will still be able to hold a championship trophy if either team wins the title. View from another perspective, though, the report's conclusions has a great deal about how power, racism, and sexism intersect, and how power actually plays out in institutions like the NBA. And to me, that's exactly what this is, right? The When Howard asked this question, and as David was saying, there was an, a moment for Adam to really say, okay... Here's what really matters, right? Because the NBA, and I always say this, they market and push themselves as the progressive league, right? That's who they are. But I always say, look, you guys get credit because you're not the NFL, right? And that's really what this is about because the NFL is awful. So you get credit for not being that. But are you really? And they're not in that sense because Adam, like Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, Adam works for Robert Sarver and all the rest of those dudes, right? That's how this game is played. And I think when you juxtapose this situation with Donald Sterling, the reason the Sterling thing was able to happen were because of the optics. Everyone heard the tape and the audio, right? Bad. No one heard anything. All you have is written in print. Someone said the N-word. That is a different register than hearing what Donald Sterling said. One. Two, the players, as everyone remembers, were ready to boycott playoff games in 2014, right? Which what would have meant what? Canceling games, money out of the owner's pockets. There was an opportunity where they saw, look, this is a bad PR hit for us. So you know what? 
We're all going to vote two thirds. Get them out of here. Let's just move along and, and we'll make it we'll make this a, a, a no issue. But if you remember, Mark Cuban at the time said, yeah, what Donald Trump did was uh, abhorrent and reprehensible. But if we begin the process of taking teams away from owners, we set a dangerous precedent, right? So he was making it clear from the jump, yeah, we're going to do this, but this isn't really how this is this is going to go going forward. I mean, I do actually think that there was a way for Adam to answer that question differently um, in a way that would allow Sarver to keep his team and maybe go through some of the sort of remediation that Silver seems convinced that he's going to go through. Um, I mean, and I think that the answer would have been to say like, look, we have a problem as a league and a society because this is not the first time we have dealt with toxic workplace issues. Remember the Mavericks? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyone talking yeah. about that anymore? Right. Speaking of more human. Right. Um, remember Donald Sterling? We know right. what a, the, the temptation when we talk about racism as a bad apple problem is mm-hmm. that if you get rid of the bad apple, the problem is gone. Right. So the temptation would have been, okay, we get rid of Sarver. And look at us. We're so great. We're so progressive. We, you know, the NFL still has Donald, you know, Daniel <laughs> Snyder, but we, right. we right. get rid of our, our, we throw out our trash. Right. Our, our, I mean, our, big, our big bads out. Look, we got another yeah. big bad out of here. <laughs> but I thought actually the best outcome would have been for him to say, look, you know what? Robert Sarver is going to remain the owner of, of this, you know, of an NBA and WNBA team. Um, different mechanism. I mean, who knows what the WNBA is going to do, by the way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they have a history of not tolerating uh, mm-hmm. fools. So mm-hmm. we will see, but we'll just focus on the NBA for now. Um, if he had said like, we are going to take a league wide look at how our, our workplaces operate at how our cultures, you know, how our employees are treated. And if we had, if they, you know, they came up with this long list of things that, you know, the sons have to do, you know, to sort of like, recover their good standing. What if every team had to do that? What if every team had to go through that kind of training and every team had to go through that kind of, um, I don't know, you know, audit. I mean, I do think that if he had made this a kind of societal issue and a league wide issue, you know, even though of course we know that not every owner is, is doing this, is behaving like this and not every, you know, executive in the league is behaving like this and it would have been a redundant and it would have been expensive and it would have been onerous and it would have been terrible for a lot of people. But if he had kind of embraced the moment to say like, look, this is, this is our problem. This is also a much bigger problem. And we're going to take the lead here in trying to address root causes so that, you know, this isn't a problem anymore for this one team. And it's not going to be a problem going forward for any other team. Then I would have said, you know what, this is the NBA being a leader. This is like, this is what should have been done, you know? And I don't know what that would have looked like, you know, but that's why they're not paying me money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my my fear there is, and David, you probably agree with this is if the NBA doesn't want the ultra black light shined on, it's right because they're like, we're going to find some things that we, cause they, they already know what's there. They don't want it coming out. They're like, this is going to be bad for all of us. If everybody sees right. This. I just, I just told Henry yesterday, I was talking to a, a young lady in her, in her twenties who has worked for NBA teams for a number of years. That's to say more than three. Uh, I, I was, she called me on a totally different matter, but one thing she was saying to me is she literally thanked me for letting her complete her sentences. I'm not kidding. And I didn't really understand what she was talking about. And she said, I just come from a culture where the president GM of the team was amazing, but a lot of the executives treated me terribly. And she kind of went into detail and she no longer works for that organization. Uh, She went off in business by herself. And my guess is we'll hear that story from a lot of teams if they did what Luisa just suggested, which would exactly, of course, what should have happened. Let's get it out now. Let's know where our problems are and clean them up now. If you want to be progressive, that's what you're supposed to do. But if you want to keep waiting for what Baxter does next, good luck with that. (laughs) See how that does for your team going forward, your league. You know, the the answer is good luck with that. But like, honestly, nothing. so sad. Because we have short attention spans because we'll keep watching Mm -hmm. because that is exactly how it's going to happen. There is going to be another story in two years. There is going to be an outcry. There is going to be another podcast where we say they should have done this. And, and, are, are you going to turn off the TV? You're going to stop watching basketball? Well, Definitely not. I can't. No. <laughs> well, we can't. <laughs> I have, I have to right, right. right. But, <laughs> but uh, to, go, to go back to what you said, um, 
LeBron made his comment yesterday. Mm -hmm. Like we, it's on us. We're in the media and I talk to players. We need to keep fanning those flames. I'm not quitting on getting Sarver out this year. Like that, that is, I mean, we all have been around long enough here where just because something happens on day one doesn't mean it always going to stay that way. We can, we can continue to rankle people and talk to people and inspire people and get them and get leaders to speak out. And it could be the case where Sarver is not around come springtime. It just has to also, fight. I mean, I hope, I know that, you know, my vision of, of Adam Silver standing up there and saying like, this is a league-wide problem. This yeah. is a societal problem. And we are going to be the leaders in um, fixing it or addressing it or starting to address right. it. Um, I know that's Pollyannish, like in the extreme, um, as you say, like they don't actually really want to, no. they know too much and they don't want to know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, like that's, you know, this is how change works. Exactly. You know, like, we ask for, if we have to stand up and say, not, not just Sarver. I do think mm-hmm. that we have to stand up and say, not, this is not about Robert Sarver. Yeah. And I do, you know, that's I mean, a great I was, point. that's a great point. I also think, you know, I was really, I have my thinking about, you know, misogyny and racism and whatever has been pretty influenced by this um, philosopher at, at Cornell in a book that she wrote, um, Down Girl. And it basically, her name is Kate Mann. And, and she has this idea that when we talk about misogyny, she's focused on misogyny. You know, it's, it's actually like a mistake to focus on the idea that men hate women, you know, mm-hmm. because the truth is a lot of men don't hate women. They do love their wives. They do love their daughters. They do love their friends. They do treat most women very well. They just happen to live in a patriarchal society where, you know, life is hard for women and and their behavior or their participation or compliance Mm -hmm. with certain things make obstacles for women that, you know, kind of like manifest. So her, her point is that we should focus on women's experiences of misogyny and not the kind of animus. So and the NBA has decided to focus on the animus, right? right? That's the word that was used and is, is being repeated. But what if we focus on like, okay, well, what is life like for people? What is life like for the employees? What is life like for the players? What is life, instead of saying like, well, does this person hate, you know, someone else? Or is this yeah, person mean? Yeah. Or, you know, if we sort of focus on like, you know, instead of the intent, the consequences as, you know, as everybody says we should, but like, let's make that real. You know, and and so therefore, I think it becomes in a way easier to start addressing some of these problems because you don't have to get into a debate over whether or not someone is like, you know, a terrible person or not. Right. You know? Right. Because and and people are complicated. I am sure that Robert Sarver really has. I mean, we know that Robert Sarver has done good, thing, right. you know, good things or however we want to define it. Um, we can actually just talk about what is life like working in that organization and forget about, you know, and it, and if, and if the way to make it better is to get rid of him, good, you know, and if there are other ways to do it, okay. But like, we should focus on that and not, you know, the bad apple yeah. at the top or whatever. But, but again, like I, I, I come back to the fact that we've got to focus on what life is like for, you know, employees and players and staff mm-hmm. and everything writ large, like mm-hmm. not just at the sun, you know, mm-hmm. And yes, it's maybe important to make that statement by getting rid of him. But um, but the point is, this is a bigger problem. And this does, I don't want to be, you know, I just don't, I don't want to have a maverick situation. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. It's what is what you talked about, Louisa, right? It's structural and root causes versus symbolic, which by the way, I'm fine for, right? Like, so yeah. you want to topple all the Confederate statues? I am 1000% in agreement with that. And what next? Like, and what else are we doing to actually stop the problem, which is systemic racism? Are we addressing that? Animus does matter. You know, yes. intent does matter. And symbols do matter. Like, I'm not sort of saying of any of this stuff is we're looking in the wrong place or talking about the wrong things. I'm just saying it's not enough. Like, mm-hmm. it's not enough to focus on Sarver. Absolutely. And I think to your point, looking specifically at not just the Suns, but every nba organization and what it's like for their employees and you know right beyond the front office like you know the towel people like everybody who's in and around what is your experience like and that's you know you got to get independent like you know groups to come in and do that because you can't have them being backed by the, all, all the different things but guess what this league makes billions of dollars i was gonna say they can afford you can, it you, right, know? you can afford it figure it out <laughs> figure it out you're smart people but this also leads me to think about the process by which we approve people who become 
governors of teams in the NBA. As we know, Las Vegas and Seattle are going to happen, right? We're going to expand here within the next few seasons. What is the process by which someone gets to own a team? Is it just simply, okay, you got money, come on in. Like, what is your, what is the due diligence check like? I have to imagine not great because, you know, we're already, you know, if you want, Henry has written, written extensively on True Hoop about follow the money, right? And we know what, where we're all connected to and, and this concept in terms of, of sport washing, which we talk about in great deal here. Like if people from the UAE and the Saudis want to get involved in the NBA, like that's, we are, we're, we're going down a slippery slope. We're already down a slippery slope with our China involvement, right? It's, you know, it's only going to get worse. So I'm wondering what we can do from that standpoint, right? And that's something you've talked about, coach, when we decide who gets to, because it's a privilege, right? Who gets to be one of the lucky people to own an NBA franchise? Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned Henry. He is the uh, the. I, I felt like Louisa wrote something on Brittany Griner. I know we we'll get to that. It was the quintessential mm-hmm. thing. I try to keep track of all of it, but but the way uh, she wrote about it last week, that I have a crystal clear picture of that story now. Well, Henry owns that space for uh, the terrible owners that we have very often in this league. And I was just telling Gerard before we started the show, Henry convinced me to start watching the show Succession. And, I, and I'm, I'm in episode, I'm in a, the second season, and there's a discussion like there always is at who's going to succeed you know, Logan Roy. And they're, all the options are terrible. <laughs> when they're, they're trying to buy, I don't know what the name of the company was, they were trying to buy that other big um, publishing house. Mm-hmm. And um, they were curious about, curious about that, as if any of the other choices in the Roy family, I actually like the woman, <laughs> but she's damaged. The, the, other, the two men are horrendous. <laughs> and that's, I think, where we're at here is they don't have a last name. They just have billions of dollars or they're they're running a, a group uh, that comprises billions of dollars, as Henry's written about with private equity. And this is why, going back to what Louisa just said before, if you don't keep Sarver, if you do keep Sarver, $10 million isn't enough. Like we, it's an enormous amount of money. But I don't think these billion, other billionaires would be saying, I. I got to watch myself because I may get fined 10, 10 million. I mean, 10 <laughs> billion is enough. 10 million isn't. We, it needs to be punitive. And I don't think it was. Yeah, for sure. And by the way, so everyone's listening out there, you succession fans, we are hashtag Team Shiv over here. Yeah. Coach, coach is all about Shiv. So we're hashtag Team Shiv. I'll see how you're feeling later on if you're still Team oh, Shiv. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. we go. Well, just compared to the other guys? Come on. <laughs> it's not hard. But yeah, there's uh, it's a, I, like I wrote, a few weeks ago, I didn't realize the show was a comedy. It's very, it's very <laughs> funny as to how crazy these fucking people are and probably more realistic than anyone would want to admit mm-hmm. uh, in the NBA for sure. Yeah. And, you know, as we're talking about this idea of, you know, Louisa mentioned, which is so great, it's not about what is the everyday person's experience who works not only for NBA teams, but within at Olympic Tower right here in the city, right? Like everyone who works within the NBA, what is your experience like? That's something we have to look at. We talked about the ownership. You know, Henry had a piece uh, come out earlier this week, and it's basically about the NBA and the Queen. Right. Um, so who knows Queen Elizabeth II um, died a few days ago, and, you know, the UK is in a 10-day state of mourning. And Henry talked about the ways in which what the Queen has done, th- did throughout her reign is similar to what people are thinking about with the NBA. And he, the analogy he used was, Someone was eating a, a box of Weetabix, like a cereal, and there was a, the queen's like stamp on the box. Like when she's hungry, she eats Weetabix too, right? It's like that in of itself is ah, who cares, right? She endorses toilet paper, motor oil. Who cares? Well, motor oil. We'll get to that in a minute, <laughs> um, right? Like all different products that she endorses. Okay, nobody cares. But there's a way in which that that office and that title and that symbol, when aligned with something that isn't so nice, gives it the appearance of oh, well, this is okay. And we know the story that, that Henry goes into is how when American and British intelligence um, with, with, with knowledge that they had about oil in Iran decided to take over the Iranian government, right? Install the Shah, right? A puppet regime, whatever. And then essentially take over the oil and turn it into BP, right? British Petroleum Company. Like, meanwhile, everyone knew that dude's kind of a bad guy, right? Okay, no problem. Have the queen show up, do a whole state procession. She's got her jewels on and the thing and whatever. Have him come to England. Oh, I mean, if she's hanging out with him, he can't be that bad, right? Queen like queen washing. Exactly. exactly right? washing, yeah. And this is the same thing we do like with the NBA. It's like, this is a progressive, cool league. 
We don't, oh, Adam's not really, no, and I'm calling Adam out because he's a face, but the, we're not asking where your money's coming from. All we want to know is, oh, looking at your bank, you got some billions in there? Great. Come on in. This team is yours. I don't really want to know the particulars. Just give us some surface level stuff. And I think, again, as I've said a million times, billions are not acquired generally by doing good things. All right. It's often acquired by doing horrendous things at worst, at best, very legally messy things. And I think, again, right now, we're in a dangerous spot uh, with, with the league and what could be happening going forward. Also, I'm so cynical. If you have billions of dollars, like, and you want to do something with it, like, I don't know, invent, you know, a battery that lasts forever and doesn't take anything. Like, don't. So, 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 I mean, right, listen. You, you don't gotta, no, no. So you're I, in the right place, you. Lisa. You're in the right place. <laughs> you are on the right place. Well, did you guys see the the Patagonia? Yes. CEO? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I was actually about to mention. You're like, who should buy this team? I was like, well, he doesn't have his billions. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> okay. broke now. So now we don't want him. You're broke. We don't. We, we don't want you know. But Mackenzie Scott, you know, take your, make, she'd be yes. like, oh, let's like. Uh, yeah, she. I mean, she could do some interesting things with the NBA team. What do you think, but, Coach? Let's let's push Mackenzie Scott. Is I mean, it's fine that she got her money from divorcing Jeff Bezos. I don't care. It's fine. But she's gonna do she's good with giving with, it with away money. really fast. Yeah, yeah, she's giving it away. So why not buy an NBA team? We'll let her be an NBA owner. I'm yeah, cool with that. you know, uh, uh, Louisa said something earlier about. Um, both you guys have talked about this. That this is this isn't just a this is a societal issue, right? This isn't just the NBA, of course, and. Um, I think there's a great way if we want to keep putting pressure on them is to keep reminding everyone of that. Uh, my daughter is 21 and she is entering the workforce soon. She's starting the serious process of interning for real corporations and she's in the hospitality business, uh, which could lead into sports. And here we go. Now you're talking about potentially working for a team. And I have to be the one to kind of walk her through what may be coming. Like this, like what Louisa kind of mentioned a little bit when she was 18, I know my daughter has dealt with some of that. She was a waitress at Hooters. In fact, she told me she was offered two different restaurant jobs. One was like an old Jewish deli that we like to go to. And one was Hooters. She's like, dad, I can deal with, you know, men harassing me when they're 20 and 30s. But those old people yell at me. I don't want to deal with that. So she chose Hooters. <laughs> <laughs> How sad is that? But I do have to have, I told her, I said, I'm come, we're going up in a couple of weeks. And we have to have the talk of like, okay, here's what has to happen when something like this may happen at your workplace, when you're working full time and it's the dream job or it, it could lead to the dream job. And yet it isn't all that important, but I don't get to make that choice for her. She has to make that choice. It's very, very complicated and not, I'm not looking forward to it. And I've never not looked forward to talking about something. It'd be great if the NBA was a leader in this thought process. And I love that, Coach. And Louisa, you mentioned something that I want to hit on here as we wrap this server part of the conversation up, the power dynamic. Yeah, right. This is, okay, you're an 18-year-old and you're in a sports locker room or you're 20 and you're, you're already in the minority of people, not just because you're a woman or you're black like me or whatever. There's only so many of those jobs that exist in the world, right? And it's something you've always wanted to do. Right. The level of what you put up with because you're like, but if I make noise or trouble, I'm not going to have this thing, this coveted thing I want so much, right? The NBA has 30 teams, which by definition means there's only 30 of every job that exists, I, right? And we know how word travels. I can't be that person because I'll find myself not in the NBA anymore. Like, talk about how hard it is to deal with this stuff from a power dynamic. Also, I mean, a lot of these times are, it's sort of easy to say like, oh, it must have been a terrible thing to go through, you know, and yes. But sometimes the situation is like really complicated. People can love their jobs and also have to put up with things that no person should have to put right. up with. Like, I mean, it's not always easy to walk away from a job, not just because you're like, this won't, you know, I'll never be able to get another job. Like you might actually love your colleagues. Right. You might love other things about it. It might be like, and you just decide, you know, well, this one thing is not worth you know, it's not just because like, you don't want to rock the ship. It's like, you can be conflicted about your own, you know, experience and whether or not you're happy in it and what's tolerable and what's not. And also what's, you know, we, we all know people also who say offensive things to get kind of as a joke and you decide that actually is a joke. Like, I mean that, you know, that they're from a different time and a different era. And that's sometimes also where power does really come into it. Because I think like, you know, if someone you know, is making a, a joke 
inappropriately because they make a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. They um, they say something they shouldn't say, and someone says something, and they maybe realize it, but like it's out there, and you know they own it or they don't. You know, mm-hmm. my point is that not all offenses are created equal. Yeah. You know, and sometimes right. that can be hard because it's yeah. easy for us to sit here and say like you should never say this, and then you, yeah. it's over. You know, I mean, my point is also, but this is where power comes in. Like if someone is doing that because they want to create an unequal power relationship, because they want to make you feel belittled and lesser than and demeaned and reduced to tears. I mean, there's a word we use the word reduced to tears. What Robert Sarver is doing was reducing people, you know, and that from a person in power, I think is unacceptable. I mean, that's, and, and I'm not saying that Adam Silver was saying he was definitely saying it was unacceptable. You know, Mm -hmm, I mean, he's mm -hmm. out there saying it's indefensible, um, but, but that's a, one of the conversations I think that needs to be had. It's not just like, oh, this person's a hateful person. It's like, mm-hmm. look, there's a reason that this is a shortcut to exerting power, right. you know, and, and what does that look like? And what if we talk about it in that, in those terms? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, in one of the recent pieces you wrote, speaking of exerting power, um, and sort of a physical display of it, um. Brittany Griner is still being detained by the Russian government. We're at 200 days now. I mean, we're it's, more than 200 days. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it, it's been quite a while. And you know, on the surface level, right? I mean, this many people saw this as, oh, the U.S. is giving aid to the Ukraine, a country which Russia is invading right now, which they are still invading as, as we currently speak. Um, yeah, well, we don't like that, so we're going to now take one of your prominent citizens and we're going to hold them against their will for you know. Yes, I know that different countries have different laws and different things like that. But, you know, we do realize that this situation is one where Russia is sort of um, trying to show its dominance, right? And its displeasure with something that uh, America has done. First, how did you start wanting to write about this and, and think about the Brittany Griner case when you approached it, writing your piece on it? Um, well, sh- I found out that she was in... Um in prison, you know, when everyone else did in March, um, I had actually had a, at that point I had a less than one week old (laughs) baby. So I was not thinking about writing anything. I wasn't really thinking about anything. I was sort of like surviving, (laughs) hearing about it through the haze. (laughs) Um, and, but yeah, I mean, I knew that this was a story that wasn't going to go away and that probably was going to come back to, um, and, um, I don't actually, again, like I wasn't thinking at the time, Mm -hmm. so I don't actually really know what I thought about what was going to happen or what should happen. Um, but certainly as I sort of like re-entered the, the thinking world, um, (laughs) you know, around the time that she was, um, you know, declared wrongfully detained. Um, the one thing I did start thinking right away was that this was not going to be a quick, there's not going to be a quick solution or easy one. And, um, you know, and that, and that it was complicated and that I did immediately have the sense that sort of like the, the idea that if this were LeBron or if this were, you know, a more conventional, um, you know, white man, that then she'd be home. We would have made the trade, whatever it was, or mm-hmm. was not correct that actually the U S didn't have that kind of leverage is the sad mm-hmm. truth. Um, and and, but one of the satisfying things about writing this story, um, and my editors were also interested in it. So whenever, you know, sometimes I come up with an idea, sometimes mm-hmm. they come up with an idea. And that was as soon as I came back from maternity leave, that was the first kind of big story that we started talking about doing. And we knew it was going to be a write around because obviously I was not going to have access to her, um, directly. Um, but, um, you know, we also felt it was an important story and we do have this rubric called persons of interest. It was a persons of interest story. And the, and the idea is basically that there is a major cultural figure, you know, cultural Mm -hmm. definedly broad who, um, has, has a big impact, but maybe people don't know their backstory as well as they might. And she kind of fit the bill perfectly in that sense, because people had a lot of opinions about her and they were not often informed by Mm -hmm. any understanding of her story or where she was coming Um, and so, yeah, so it seemed like an immediately worthwhile story, but very difficult because they're all, as you say, all these like geopolitical mm-hmm. ideas and people have passionate ideas about what, but on people on both sides had passionate ideas about, you know, what we should be doing or not doing. And, 
Um, and it's also just a sad story because, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't think, um, and I never did think that it was going to be immediately and easily resolved. Um, no. And given where we are, it doesn't seem like it will be anytime soon. Right. Um, yeah. But I will say it was a, one of those, gra- I mean, I don't want to say, take a, you know, I don't want to take anything away from the seriousness of the story, but um, it was a gratifying story to write in a lot of ways because I actually learned so much from talking to, you know, different experts on state hostage taking or wrongful detainees and even what, even what that is. Cause it turns mm-hmm. out like my understanding of it was confused, you know, sort of like, well, what does have, I mean, learning about, for instance, that the, whether or not, like guilt doesn't factor into it. Right. Yeah. Um, having someone kind of patiently explain the relationship between, you know, the, the designation of wrongful detention and the crime itself has, or, or purported crime, alleged crime or whatever, the trial itself has like, actually there's like no relationship and how does this designation work and why do they do it? And what's some of the history behind it? And, and what are we, what are we talking about when we talk about costs or asymmetry or, you know, and this kind of debate over whether or not um, it incentivizes other states, you know, to do. So all this stuff is like swirling around her conversation. It's often being had by people who don't, are not experts in that area. So to being able to talk to people who know what they're talking about was hugely useful. Um, and then also just developing and deepening my understanding of where she was coming from as a person mm-hmm. and getting to know, know her at, without ever talking to her, obviously, mm-hmm. but just through, you know, watching her and, um, the streaming and also just reading her book and, you know, talking to some people who knew her and, um, and getting a much better sense of, of her and finding it really kind of interesting. I mean, one of the things I, 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 um, started exploring was this idea that like Russia was, I mean, it's not easy to play in Russia as an American, um, you know, in the best of times, but you know, that she was really comfortable there, you know? And I mean, there is this way in which we celebrate the, you know, these, WNBA figures for being so like on point politically and, you know, being so outspoken and, you know, being these kind of like just saying, you know, being these kind of like vibrant, strong, you know, um, people, you know, when it comes to social justice issues, but that there was some relief um, in going to Russia and just getting to hoop, you know, (laughs) like not having to be this kind of major political figure. And it's, and it's complicated because like, you know, we talk about NBA owners, like the owner of UMCC ECAT is like not a good guy. He's a, he's a Putin, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, they all are. I mean, so like, it's not like she was going to somewhere where, you know, it was a kind of basketball utopia or a utopia in any sense, you right. know, like that money that she was being paid is coming from somewhere. Um, yeah. And it's a country where there are actually law and not just like, Oh, the Supreme court is going to take away, you know, there actually are laws against, you know, and she was insulated about, uh, you know, against LG targeting LG, um, TB, uh, sorry. BTQ. <laughs> yes, um, point is that, um, you know, it was not. And yet, and she was insulated from all that. And there was some sort of like, you know, it was, she got to focus on being a basketball player. She didn't have to fight all that. And, and, you know, I think that that there was something really poignant about that because then of course, you know, she did until she didn't, she was, a, yeah. she was a political figure until she wasn't, yeah. you yep. know, and, and, and there, there was something super tragic about that to me. And no it, it just sort of deepened her whole story um, in this really kind of sad and, complex way i mean they the the owners of sports teams over there i mean they don't even hide that fact they are who they are right i mean diana tarasi and super tell an amazing story about their time playing in russia about like one on the phone oh your boy's calling it's the owner and it's like it's just like this they are legitimate bad dudes like but they love their teams and they're they take care of their their players and like so you said everything's great until it's not right when you were writing what how how did, particularly in this story, how did anything change about how you felt, particularly about her, about Britney's, the, in the issue of gender, race, and sexuality, either broadly or her specifically in the context of this story? I would say not in the context of the story. I mean, I actually think that her gender, race, and sexuality being used by Russia to exploit U.S. divisions, because that's what Russia does. Yeah. You know, Russia's really good at inflaming 
pre-existing. I mean, okay, let me start by saying our problems are our problems. Russia did not create, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that Russia like was like, oh, look, here's this, you know, <laughs> figure, like maybe you should fight about her. Like, mm -hmm. you know, they're very good though about, you know, exploiting wedge issues. It's, it's well documented. <laughs> um, and so I do think that they saw this person sort of like fall into their lap, you know, and decided hmm, very useful in all sorts of respects. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I had, um, Danny Gilbert, a really smart, um, you know, theorist, basically, you know, she said to me like, you know, Russia's already won in a lot of respects, you know? Um, so I don't kind of think I do, I sort of do think that, um, you know, obviously it makes her situation, she's more vulnerable for sure, but, um, and it has something to do with it, but I don't think that that's, there are most of the people who are wrongfully detained are, are white men across the world, you know, and the other person who is, is Paul um, Whelan and he is a corporate executive from Michigan, mm -hmm. former Marine, very much a white guy, <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. it's not like they brought him, he's been over there for 400 days. Like, it's not like they, we like burned down the world to bring him to home, you know? So I, I, I disagree that, um, you know, I, I don't want to say I disagree. I'm just saying like, it's not so simple as saying like, oh, this happened to her because of, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. who she is. Mm -hmm. I do think who she is informs obviously everything because, you know, who you are does inform everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I did really come to appreciate her own, you know, the tensions in her own kind of life and how she has worked through them and, you know, um, is sort of torn between, she calls herself like a, a people pleaser, you know? And between being this kind of like really strong, proud, autonomous person um, and how that's played out in her life is like, I think really interesting. And um, yeah, learning about her was fascinating yeah. um, and made me want, I mean, made me for all sorts of, re you know, I want her to come home because I want her to be safe. Hey, mm -hmm. full mm -hmm. stop. There's nothing yep. that follows that. But that said, um, you know, obviously I'm going to be fascinated to see what the rest of her life holds for her. Um, once she does come home, you know, she's never going back to Russia, which is yeah, yeah. sad because she actually really did. I mean, I read your piece. She really seemed to enjoy it. And I, I've coached a lot of players that have played in Moscow and St. Petersburg and uh, uh, there's a few other relatively large cities and they all loved it. It's just cold. You know, it's cold in the wintertime when you're playing professional basketball there. Uh, you know, people are still going to States that, you know, China has done this before, you know, I mean, it's not like, I mean, I don't, I think that there are certain places where, um, a in a lot of parts of the world, you know, this kind of behavior is on the rise across the world. Yeah. This mm -hmm. kind of, you know, the state sponsored wrongful detention. What, what, uh, um, do you, I'm not sure I'd want to go to China or, no. or, or Turkey or something to play basketball right now. I'm not saying like, I, I, you know, I blame anyone who does, but right. um, no, I have a, I have an Israeli player that won't play in Turkey, high level player. He won't play in Turkey. Yeah. Louisa, uh, is there any way, anything written about what the typical person who is found with, uh, a, I think your words were a raisin sized amount or raising weight. Oh, yeah, it, would a, it would be a few months. That's what I thought. Prison yeah. and getting someone yeah. deported. That's exactly what um, I thought. Okay. Yeah. I mean, but it's in a way, again, it's, it's beside the point. It's not like she got this, like, again, she didn't get this long detention because she's a, you know, a black gay woman. No, she she's got a political prisoner. She's American. She's a celebrity. She's yeah. a political yeah. prisoner. Yeah. Right. And the whole celebrity aspect plays into it. It's like complicated because, you know, like I said, that there's someone else over there who's not a celebrity. Right. She's American. Yeah. It would be a big deal if yeah. she came home and he didn't. Right. You know, mm -hmm. he's been there. She's been there for too long, 200 mm -hmm. days. He's been there twice for as twice long. As long. Yeah. I'm not saying that that means, right. you know, right. that she, yep. I'm just saying that like, it's not, it's part of what makes this a delicate situation is that she's not the only one there. And I think part of what Russia's going to try to do or is trying to do is exploit, exploit that. Pawns in a game of high stakes game of geopolitical chess. Right. This I don't is even think of this chess anymore. It's <laughs> much scarier. It's not even chess. We wish it was chess. Yeah, I wish it was chess. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, the people say it's chess. Chess has really well-defined rules. Yeah, it's true. You know? That's yeah, the whole right. point. This is the story. It's a terrible yeah. metaphor right. for anything. Right. <laughs> because you're, you're, chess is like, everybody knows exactly yep. 
what the rules are. And I mean, I play chess, so I mean, I play chess badly, but, but the other thing is that in chess, you lose if you make the wrong Four decisions. Book. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a very precise, I mean, it's on you, right. you know, in the real world, like real world is not, nothing is like, basketball <laughs> right. is not like chess, right. you know, war is not like chess, like, <laughs> you know, just nothing is like chess, but chess. That's the beauty of the game. I like it. So are you, are you, so is it like a, a side career for you? Like you're going to, you're going to do like a, a chess thing when you become like a. She's written about chess. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm not good enough to be a psych career. <laughs> uh, there are, there are aspects of basketball that uh, we steal from chess for sure. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, don't, I didn't mean to say no. I mean, I, I meant as a metaphor. Well, of course. Like, yeah. It's a, a kind of funny metaphor because it's, um, because I mean, I get the point that you know yes. you are trying to anticipate moves down the line, and certain certain kinds of moves are more likely to trigger, and you have to do that kind of calculation of like what is the array of possibility here, and right. how am I going to respond? And and, and fake attacks, yeah, right, and gambits, you, yeah, yeah, sure. gambits. yeah. I forgot the <laughs> yeah. term. That's right. Those are the yeah. best parts. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I would love to see like, I would love to see an NBA coach start calling like consider famous openings. Like, you know, they're they're known as opening. They're like, this is the Evans gambit. (laughs) (laughs) I I will, I will tell you all. And I can, I can text uh, Luis or talk to her on the, off uh, off this uh, pod, but I have a chapter in my book called red, yellow, green, where I had to pretend that we were, we wanted our players to shoot the ball. We were trying to hold the ball because I put my two players up to varsity and JV. And if the other team pressed us, we were going to lose. They were like 19 and one. We were also very good. But then I moved these players up and I had a six foot nine assistant coach, big, tall guy, red hair. And um, I had to convince him. I had to tell my team in this one game, everything he yells, you have to ignore it because he's going to scream at you to keep shooting. But I'm yelling red, yellow, green. Until we get to green, you can't shoot anything but a layup. Yellow was layups only. Red was under no circumstances. We're trying to shorten the game. So I used to carry a towel like John Thompson. I think I've maybe told Gerard this story before. Yeah. And I kept hiding my face because I was laughing so hard at John, <laughs> who's screaming, shoot the ball! But he went, they weren't allowed to shoot. And uh, so that week, we, they never pressed us all game. We won 50 to 49. It was unbelievable. Yeah, Amazing. So that was, that was our game. But it was Thorpe's Gambit. My L- favorite, one of my favorite, like when I was in seventh grade, my, my math teacher from seventh grade, who was also my calculus teacher, yeah. um, and now works at the school where I'm sending my daughter. Oh, wow. I'm sending her there entirely because right, he's there. anyway. Yeah. But um, uh, we had this kid um, who was a little bit like, uh, he thought he knew what he was talking about. <laughs> he was that kid who was like always immediately raising his yeah. hand, you yeah, know, yeah, shouting yeah. out the answer. And so one day my teacher sent him out to, I don't know, I think he was like to get a photocopy or something. And he said, okay, we come back. Everything Chris says is wrong. Yeah, okay. wow. Everything Chris is right. Okay. So this comes back, right? He's like, so what's, you know, two plus four? Right. I, we were doing, you know, pre algebra. Right, yeah. right, right. But, you know, um, and Chris, you know, six, you know, and he's like, wrong. Uh, Shaw? And Shaw's like, eight. And he'd be like, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. And he, this happened for like the rest of class. Like, oh not God. always, just enough right. to like yeah. drive Chris absolutely, yeah, yeah, like yeah. keep Chris on his heels yeah. and like drive him. Up. And by the end, he was like, she was so and, and it worked. I swear. Did you did y'all tell him what you did? <laughs> oh yeah, the, by the end he was like, wait a second. And everybody and also everybody's laughing yeah, at the end. Funny. I mean, it was like such a that's you funny. know, and it, and it was and it was work. And also he also had he always did this all the time. He would do this to me like once I came in. This is I'm taking this so far away from basketball and, <laughs> okay. and everything else. But I came. I, I was also a little. I had a. I had some Chris in me. You'd be you'd be shocked to learn. <laughs> I had a little bit of Chris in me. I had a little bit of like you know too much arrogance yeah and um and he sent me out it was to get a projection you know the in the old mm-hmm. days you used to like yeah. clear projection yeah. so you go get a projection you know thing made and i came back and i walk into the room and my desk is the only thing in the room i must have been gone for five minutes okay <laughs> all the other desks have been taken out of the room all the other kids just my desk alone i love this in guy. the middle of the room and i just like sit down wow <laughs> For a few minutes, and then everybody just pops up. We have windows, you know, uh, alongside yeah. of the courtyard, and everybody just pops up. So <laughs> yeah. he, he was so good, also at choosing the kids that you could do yeah, that to. Yeah, yeah. You know, he never did that to a kid that couldn't withstand. It. He only course. did it to the, 
to the Louises and Chris's. <laughs> um, but it was great. He would also do things like he would put a, a walkie talkie in that we had those like ceilings, you know, where you could push yeah. up the, the boards and he would put yeah. a walkie talkie in the English teacher next door, Mr. Moon. And periodically he'd say, Mr. Newman, this is God. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's funny. Things like that. I just love that. But I, I learned so much math and, and I got to say like, talk about team culture. I mean, yeah. this is something that, you know, coach, yeah. You, you can talk about because, uh, we had, um, you know, he taught BC calculus my senior year, and I might get this wrong. I don't want anyone to fact check me, but there were, there were 17 girls and Chris in the class. Wow. Wow. There were 17 people, 16 girls yeah. and Chris, <laughs> Chris of the wrong thing. <laughs> <Right. laughs> and, um, I think we all got fours and fives on the wow. BC calculus exam, which was, wow. and he, we didn't use a textbook. He actually just wow. kind of taught us. Mark, mark of a good teacher right there yeah but but it was it was that mix of like controlled chaos yeah. you know where everybody was having fun but also we were all kind of taught the lesson when we needed to be taught the lesson and uh yeah and bc cal not ab look at you yeah yeah i think that's what pop's really good at pop's pop's yeah. pop knows the guys of, of the buttons that he can press for the guys that can handle that and is a little more standoffish or a little more loving uh, to players yeah. that really can't. That's any good coach. Coach it should be that way. You, I was gonna say, you know this. Yeah. Like it's my experience also as a coach, right? I always say the the athletes I know who I can call out for lack of a better word in front of their teammates, and that's going to get them to do what they need to do. Yeah. Versus the ones that need to be taken out and coddled and told how good they are and right. But like you, that's the relationship side of it, right? Like you yeah, gotta exactly. know who you're dealing with to be able to do that. And um, also the moment in which you need to actually tell the person who you're always like riding, you got to say like actually, you know. Exactly. You know, I know that you can handle it. Because you, because you, because you, you can't, you can't do that to them all the time, right? Yeah, you're gonna exactly. lose, you're gonna lose them as well, right? <laughs> so it is that fine. And, but good coaches know that. Bad ones, you know, they don't. Um, Louisa, one of the favorite thing, uh, favorite sports of mine is tennis. I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting David back into it. He's, you know, he, uh, he's more of a Borg McEnroe guy. I'm trying to yeah. slowly get him back into it. Uh, I think, I think Alcaraz might get him a little excited. But um, you wrote quite a few pieces about the U.S. Open, and we have some major retirements uh, happen. Serena Williams, as everybody knows, Roger Federer announced he's retiring this morning. Um, I loved your piece about the women's final. What <laughs> tennis? To, first of all, I I love the game because it is like the heart of mano e mano combat, right? Mm -hmm. And there, you have to problem solve on your own. Like there's no like, and as I said to the coach the other day, it can get away from you in a hurry, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and we've seen it. Like something goes bad, next thing you know, you're down love four, and you're like, how the this happened? <laughs> like, what what am I doing here? But hey, man, you got to figure it out. What is it about tennis that makes it so fun and interesting to write about? Um, I think, I mean, largely what you just said, um, that it is a kind of, there's a sort of intense individualism. <laughs> you are <laughs> left alone out there and you have to figure it out. Um, and you're left alone with yourself. It's, you know, I mean, you can have all these debates and basketball at the hot hand and, you know, mm -hmm, runs mm -hmm, and things mm -hmm. like that. But in tennis, it's, it's actually a kind of a real thing. And it's because partly because uh, you're the only person out there. Right. So when you tense up, I mean, I mean, David can talk about how, um, you know, tension and psychology can mm -hmm. influence shooting form and things like that. And things you have to do to sort of like work on, you know, getting, getting yourself into a good place, but, but it, you have teammates to relieve you if you're having a mm -hmm. bad game. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if you are on the tennis court, you are just stuck with your, and, and it, you can see it like from a writing perspective, mm -hmm. you can see the arm drop on a toss. You can yep. see tension in the feet. You can see the feet slow down. You can see mm -hmm. how a player can seem heavy. And likewise, you can see it when a player is sailing. You can see it when you can tell when they are seeing, as they say, like the tennis ball, the size of a cantaloupe. Mm -hmm. And there's just a kind of joy to it. Mm -hmm. um, I also am drawn to like the aesthetic aspects of the game. I like the geometries. Mm -hmm. um but yeah you but i do like the pop psychologizing part because it does feel earned in a way that other sports you know you you could talk about clutch or not like in tennis it's a real thing it's a know? real thing it's a well, real thing um the, the big thing you see is, is on the serve right that's that's that is the yeah. biggest point where you see it i know if you're tense right now but oh my god that ball toss is way the hell off yeah you can even see it when you're up close and i was there i'm like oh i think there's a little lump in your throat there like yeah. you're, you're right. you can also see their faces i mean <laughs> yeah. this is something true it's one of the reasons i like basketball as opposed to writing about basketball as opposed to football you know football they were helmets right you know and there are so many of them and you're so far away and you know in basketball it's a very kind of it, basketball has that in common with tennis there's this sort of like intimacy to mm -hmm. it 
Um, and, and there's also even, there's a sort of soundtrack, you know, to the, to the game of tennis, which is also true of basketball, but like, there's a kind of, um, you know, a rhythm that, you know, mm-hmm. it gets you in and the sort of like lulls of the crowd and everybody kind of going in it together and the gasps and the whole thing. I mean, I just mm-hmm. find it to be a really kind of beautiful, beautiful, interesting and, and hyper-athletic game. Oh my you know, God. You know, so it's, yeah. And changing. I mean, it's also, there are a lot of different contrasts of styles and so, yeah. The, the ability to transition from defense to offense, right? Like literally well, these days, one, especially, I mean, that's the right? whole story. That's with whole one game. stroke, right. It's, it's what you're able yeah. to do. And as you mentioned, when you're in a zone, right, seeing the ball, not only big, but seeing it early, as they say, right. Yeah. And painting the lines. Like that's when yeah. I know someone's locked in. I'm like, oh, well, they're hitting every line. Like if, like I, I feel for the opponent. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you, man. Like, can you call a timeout? Like, <laughs> Petra Kavitova, who's um, yeah. uh, you know, she's a multiple Grand Slam winner on mm-hmm. the women's side, and and she is like the 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 kind of like biggest ceiling floor player in the world. Like, if Without she's question. on, she can beat. You know, anyway. when she was on, she would beat Serena at her mm-hmm. best. Like, just mm-hmm. she just her ceiling is just infinite. You know, um, and she has her own kind of amazing story. Um, but um, she won or uh, she won a match. Um, in Cincinnati earlier, and she apologized to her opponent for playing so well. Oh god! I mean, she's like, she's like, I'm sorry, I just hit all the lines. Like, I yeah. couldn't. I was like, yeah. kind of nothing I could do about it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious. But there is that kind of like, it's like, sorry, it's just. It, it really is because they'll finish a match, and it's like, and they'll talk, especially if it's like a final or whatever. I'm sorry, you're just too good today. Like, I, I and yeah. there's really nothing you can do about it, right? Like, I can't extinguish the flame. I can't send in the reliever to cool off the hot hitter. Like. It just is, right? And then one and one match and over, you're out. And that's sort of like the beauty, right? But also the sa- the sadness, right? The poetry you're seeing in it. It's quite wonderful, actually. Yeah. This is though at all elite sports, the, the elite athletes, they do paint the lines better. Right. You in basketball, we kind of you or in golf, uh, you tip your hat and you move on. You know, the other day someone tried, you saw it on Twitter, someone showed uh, Wagner doing a step back three mm-hmm. over Giannis. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, that that that's ain't it. cooking. Right. That, Giannis just, did his job. You made Franz take a really tough shot. He made it. You move on. If you keep right. making it, well, then you're Steph Curry. You know, then you're James <laughs> right. Harden when he was the MVP right. basically three years in a row, in my opinion. There's, no, then there's nothing to do with those guys. Same thing in tennis. You can try to break the rhythm up, but when they're on fire and they just, like you said, paint those lines, get a lot of first serves in, uh, you know, you're not going to win those games or matches. You're just going to lose. That's how it goes. I actually think there's a pretty big tennis falling within basketball. I mean, I think that there's mm-hmm. enough. There is. Devin Booker um, was at one of the games. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think actually, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of, I mean, I think even LeBron James said maybe you would have played tennis. I know because well, people in tennis like hold on to that quote, like, oh, if only <laughs> the next LeBron James is playing tennis. Not well, did, did you hear what James Blake said? He's like, well, as someone who played in the Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal Novell Djokovic era, thank God he didn't play tennis because yeah, I wouldn't exactly. play anything. Um, but yeah um but but i mean i I mean i think i don't know i wouldn't be surprised lauren the steve kerr is a tennis fan right there Um, there is a lot of there's a lot of crossover a lot of kobe was tennis fan yeah yeah well and i think those kinds of guys like lebron a big thing is and which is something that henry's written about um as we start to wrap here was like lebron when we talk about him constructing teams and the kinds of teammates that he likes right he generally doesn't like younger teammates because they're not on time they don't well, in tennis, he loves it because I don't have any teammates. Right. Right. So, I mean, if I win, it's about me. You're right. the boss. Right. right. right? Like, it's I'm your, in control. Literally, actually, he can hire his own coaches. Like, he hired he physio, whatever. Like, whatever it's, I'm it's on. All... Yes. And there's yeah, a way the elite ones, well, right? Actually. That's their. That's how their minds work, right? It's like, yeah. no, no, I have – because they're, they're control freaks, all of them, right? If you right. Like, watch – no, no, I have to do it this way because it's going to work. And you, it's hard to argue with – 23 grand slams and what well it's kind of worked so i got it all right whatever you say works very very yeah. fascinating it's Louis- interesting though you know there are these players who are doing something wrong everybody knows they're doing something wrong they're with this wrong coach or whatever but they're successful enough that like they don't hear you you know they right. don't hear good sense and well it's funny now, now we're getting listen this is a basketball podcast we're getting super inside the weeds on tennis but it's even something right and this was like peak fed right so but when Nadal started really causing him problems on his backhand side, right, with that heavy topspin that would bounce, and Federer six one, but if the ball's up by his shoulders on a right. on a one handed backhand, I, I can't do anything with it. Right. But then it's like, 
getting a coach to can well, he should change this little thing. Well, I already won yeah, 19 grand slams. Right, exactly. What the fuck? Are, what, why that's, am I going to change? Yeah, that's, but he did. Right. That's Bolstra <laughs> telling LeBron. I mean, this is the yeah. story of 2017 is right. he started stepping into the ball and hitting more mm-hmm. drives. I mean, and, and that's, and this is the other great thing about great athletes. They learn to adjust. Yeah. Like they mm-hmm. learn to evolve their game. That's always true. of thousands, It's the Russell Westbrook story right now. Russell Westbrook didn't <laughs> really evolve and Perfect. needed to. Right. Yeah. When Spolstra told LeBron, we had, we need to do some things differently. He said, I just won, you know, two MVPs this way. And suppose like, yeah, but no championships. Like, we need you to win a championship with us. And LeBron did. You know, yeah. you got to make that adjustment. It is wonderful. But, Louisa, this was wonderful. Thank you yes, so much thanks, for joining Louisa. us. We, Thank you. Really good conversation. Uh, tell the people where they can find you. Uh, you can read my work at The New Yorker on theyorker.com. And, uh, yeah, I'm also written some books. Um, you have. Mm-hmm. I have. Not exactly basketball books. It's okay. Um, <laughs> But I wrote a biography of Louisa Catherine Adams called Louisa, the extraordinary life of Mrs. Adams. <laughs> and um, I wrote a book about four brothers in World War One, two pacifists and two soldiers called Conscience. And uh, I edited an anthology about losers, which is what I was on the yeah. um, True Who podcast. Which is so good. Oh, I love it. I edited an anthology on losers. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, no, this is this is an awesome conversation, and folks, we'll be back uh, next week. Out today on Troop, uh, Coach has his top twenty-five MVP candidates. Look, we, here's the the joke that everyone knows: Coach is an inclusive kind of guy. Me, exclusive. So my MVP candidate list probably got four people on it. But he's got your top twenty-five um, MVP candidates, and we'll talk about that uh, next week as we do some of our preview pods. Until then, take care, everybody.